Masks. They're very interesting, aren't they? Masks. They've been around forever. In fact, the very first mask was a fig leaf right there. In Genesis 3, 7, it says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Here's the thing. It's often thought that Adam and Eve made fig leaves to hide from God. But I don't think that's an accurate reading of the story. Because when you read the story closely, see, this is what happens. First they made, they made the fig leaves, and then it was after they made the fig leaves. Oh, Tito was sort of in the way. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they used the trees to hide from God. The fig leaves were to hide from each other. That's why they made fig leaves. And ever since, humanity has been hiding behind masks. Does not take that much honesty with ourselves, right, to know we wear brilliant disguises? Sometimes they're so complex, we don't even know we're wearing them. But this hiding behind the mask is very understandable. See, it started in the garden with this gross misunderstanding and actual mistrust of who God was. Adam and Eve bought into the lie that God did not love them. And because of that, they thought he didn't care for them. They thought he didn't want what was best for them. They instead held on to the idea that he was a judgmental God waiting to destroy them if he did not like what he discovered about them. And we've mostly inherited that legacy. Just fascinating, isn't it? Haven't you ever read the Genesis story and thought about that? Why did they hide from God? There was nothing in the Genesis story to suggest that even after they ate the wrong fruit that they should have hid from God. Nothing. There was nothing there. That's a narrative they bought into. And it's a narrative we've been buying into. It's a narrative religion buys into. It's a narrative Christianity buys into. Fear. That we need to hide. And see, that belief in judgment is affirmed constantly from the time we're conceived, we're judged by those around us, right? A woman gets pregnant, and what's the first thing she does? Judging begins. Prenatal testing, ultrasounds, child is born and instantly taken and judged, heart rate, oxygen levels, pulse, temperature, vision. Then the judging kicks into high gear. We have preschool screenings. MCAS tests, you have to try out for bands, you have to try out for athletic teams, report cards come home, and the masks go on as fear takes over. It's fear. You see, our deepest desire is to know and be known. That's what we all want. We want to be loved. We want to love. Yet our fear of judgment, of ridicule, of rejection is even stronger than that desire. And this is a tension that saps all the joy out of life. This is the tension that creates neurosis, anxiety, cognitive dissonance, all of it. This is the tension that prevents us from living authentic human beings. We try. We find friends. And when we find truly close friends, we get hopeful and we start to take masks off a couple at a time. And the better the friends, the more masks we take off. And for a while, it's wonderful. But inevitably, we take off one too many masks, and even our closest friends ridicule, rejects, judges. And just when we thought we might finally be known, loved even, we throw the mask back on. 
So we get married. We find our soulmate. The one, finally, who will love us without our mass. And in the beginning, it certainly seems that way. But then the misunderstandings begin, the criticism starts, and we realize even here, certain masks need to stay on. And then there are the masks that we never take off. Because some masks hide ourselves from ourselves. Right? <clears throat> Don't we all have thoughts, emotions, feelings that are so disturbing we pretend they don't we all have things that we just really don't like about ourselves? So we live as if we're not there, as if they're not there. We put on masks. So here's the question. If we don't trust ourselves to love even ourselves without masks on, how can we trust anyone else? And there's the rub. The Greek word for faith is this word here, pistis. And it actually means an act of trust. So the question is, whom are we going to trust? But I want to make a side note here because this is important. This, this what, what the word faith means actually gets to the heart of where post-Reformation Christianity has really broken down. Do you know what orthodoxy means now? Right opinion. Orthodoxy never meant right opinion. Orthodoxy meant right living. Had nothing to do with knowing the right thing or believing the right thing about something. It had to do with living. This is why the earliest Christians were not called Christians because they believed the right thing. They were called Christians because they lived like Jesus Christ. This has been the biggest hurt that post-Reformation theology has brought into Christianity. Jesus never asked us, read the Gospels. He never asked us to believe facts about the kingdom. He asked us to believe in the kingdom to trust the kingdom. How do we trust something? By living into it, right? We always break down because we're human, but living into something begins with trusting that it's true. You choose not to smoke at some point because you trust it will give you cancer and you will die. Now, some people fight with that addiction. I understand that, but that's where the beginning of that choice comes from, trusting it, right? And this is why Paul said, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't say believe the right things. He said, no, trust the kingdom and live into the kingdom. Trust that what Christ tells us to do is really what we should do. So when Christ says, love your enemies, he actually means that. But see, like we saw last week, as we've been in this story for a few weeks, as we saw last week, it's so easy to have faith in certain theological facts and to build that up because then we can call ourselves Christians without being anything like Jesus Christ. And that's a lot easier because being like Jesus Christ is, is hard in this world. So back to this question. If faith means trust, whom are we going to trust? Whom are we going to trust? The disciples on the road to Emmaus had to ask the same question. They had to move to the same place, trust. See, when Jesus first joined them on the road, he was a stranger. They did not know him, so they began to tell him their story. They took off a mask or two. Then he began to tell them his story, and their hearts began to burn with the knowing of that story. And this brought them to a critical decision. 
if you caught it when Eric was reading it to us. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. Do they let this stranger walk on, or do they invite him in? As he has walked with them, he has already done so much, as we saw a couple weeks ago. He has taken their sadness, their loss, their disillusionment, and he's lifted it up and placed it into the context of a story far greater than their own. He has given them hope. But without an invitation into their home, he remains a stranger. Fascinating stranger, thought-provoking stranger, inspiring but still a stranger. And while they would have the memory of his words, their lives would remain very much the same. But the invitation to come and stay changes everything. Because what was an interesting encounter with a stranger now becomes a transforming relationship. And this is the great mystery and wonder of communion, of the Eucharist. Here's how Henry Noun describes this. One of the decisive moments of the Eucharist and of our life is the moment of invitation. Do we say, it was wonderful to meet you. Thank you for your insights, your advice, and your encouragement. I hope the rest of your journey goes well. Goodbye. Or do we say, I have heard you. My heart is changing. Please come into my home and see where I live. This invitation to come and see is the invitation that makes all the difference. It's an invitation to Jesus that says, stay with me, know me, love me. Jesus is a very interesting person, isn't he? Take him according to the gospel stories alone. Forget for a second what religion has done to Jesus, and especially what religion in the West has done to him. And you can't help but be attracted to him if you just read the Gospels for what they are. His gentleness and kindness are legendary. His words are profoundly challenging. His presence is heartwarming. But do we let him in? Do we invite him in? That's the question. Do we show him our lives behind the walls of our homes, behind our masks? Do we let him into the most hidden closets of our lives, the ones that we keep locked even from ourselves? Do we really want him to stay with us, or would we rather have him go on his way? This is the critical question that should be asked by all Christians. Do we really want Jesus to change our lives or not? Or are we just looking for something that will support whatever we want to do and whatever is best for us? Because you can get that. That's the amazing thing about the Bible. You can use the Bible to support any theology you want. But if the Bible is a story about God making us like his son, then that's different. And that has to start with inviting men. That has to start with reading his story and saying, Oh, I really don't want to live like that. But if God says that's the best way to live, then Lord, help me live like that. Because if we can't get there, if we can't even get there that that's how I want to live, then how is that transformation ever going to happen, right? That's our part of it. That's why I played that. Wasn't that a great song, that, that grace song? 
You know, here I sit and struggle with my free will. We all struggle with our free will. We have free will. We are free to hate others. We are free to live a life that is all about us and exclusive and all that. That's fine. We're free to do that. I guess from my perspective and my profession and what I believe, then that's okay. Just let's not call ourselves Christians as we do that. Let's not make up a religion that has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That allows us to hate people and hurt people and not love people. Let's not do that. Let's instead embrace this Christ that we say we love and say, be honest with them. That, see, this is where we're at. This is where the masks come. This is where the disciples were. To trust and say, okay, I don't want to live that way, and I can be honest with you about that, God, because you're not going to judge me and hate me. Now, relationship starts. Now, it gets beautiful. <clears throat> Noun says, the Eucharist requires this invitation. Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. Stay with us. And isn't it interesting how this is a different thought about communion? I want you to watch what happens here at the end of the story because it's magnificent. We often think of communion as Christ inviting us to his table, right? And that is true at some level. But the paradox is Jesus wants to be invited. We saw that. He was going to go on. He was going to go further. Without the invitation, he goes on to other places. He's a relentless lover, but he's an exceedingly gentle lover. He never forces himself on us. So without an invitation, he remains a stranger. That is why I like to celebrate communion the way we do it here at Cana, the way some of the most ancient branches of Christianity have always done it. You come to get it. I love that. Something else, maybe post-Reformation Christianity sort of shifted on us. Right? You have to make a decision to participate in this feast. You have to get up from where you're at and come take Christ into your being. We have to do that. That's why I love when you come for communion. You have to make a conscious decision. And this is an act of deep trust. This is an open invitation to the divine other. It is saying to God, I will trust you and I will entrust my life to you. They urged him, come stay with us. Two friends and a stranger walk down the road. Now three friends sit at table. The transformation has begun and it begins with trust. So here's the thing. God is worthy of our trust. We need not hide anything from him. God is not one of us. I think that's something we often forget. And if you're looking for God in one of us, I will prepare you now. You will be sorely disappointed until the day you die. Yes, at times, any one of us, through God's power, can raise us and be Christ in your life for you for a moment. We are not Christ. And no one is. And no matter how great your friendships are, no matter how great your marriage might be, no matter how great, if they are your Christ, I am preparing you now. It will come crashing down on you. God is not us. And that is a good thing.
because that will never come crashing down on them. We don't have to hide anything from God. His love is unconditional and unending. And you know, sometimes I hear in relationships, people get so mad because they just can't be themselves. Okay, but that's because you want it from someone that's not God. We should all strive to be that for each other. But only God loves unconditionally all the time. All the time. Here's the problem and the rub. That story can be hard to believe. And I think it starts with certain ways of reading the Genesis story that we started with today. Some readings suggest God was angry with Adam and Eve, and so he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, which if that's true, so much for being unconditional. Okay? But maybe the story can be read differently. So God says he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. So this is after Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and live forever. This is a key line in the entire narrative, that the, the story that tells us about the beginning of things. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So a number of things are going on here. One, there's a translation issue. We're coming from an ancient language that really English knows nothing about. Though we have to trust our translators, and the translators have done the best they could. But the second thing that happens, this gets translated into English, you know, hundreds of years ago, when these words meant different things than they mean to us. So right here as we read this, a lot of these words are harsh words, right? But that's not necessarily what the language was trying to communicate. So start again with this truth. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So this is just God wanting to save us. So we've eaten. We've, we've bought the lie that God doesn't love us, so we're separate from this God who loves us because we've bought the lie, right? If we eat of an immortal fruit that would give us immortality, we're going to be separate from God forever. And God couldn't stand that. Think about that. So what would you do if there was something that was going to forever take your child away from you? What would you do about that thing? I know what we do when it just comes to stairs. We buy $100 things to put in front of the stairs so our toddlers don't fall down the stairs. When I was a kid, they all put us in these these chairs that had wheels on them, and we bombed around the house. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my gosh, you can't do that because it's going to bomb right down the stairs, as so many kids did. We go to length to keep our kids safe, and we're not talking about being separated from them forever. You know, uh, we had the beautiful privilege of being with our daughter this weekend, and so she was taking us to the airport yesterday, and it's, you know, it's Minnesota. I don't, I don't know why anybody lives in Minnesota. Um, no, honestly, we woke up. It was minus 12. No wind chill. Minus 12. It was just dumb. Like, there were no animals. They, they're smart enough. I think all the animals were down in Iowa or something. And it's sort of an ugly day. And so we're having lunch. And, and I was just like, so, hon, what's up for tonight? She goes, oh, we're headed down 
downstate for a concert tonight, and I'm just like, you know, instantly that father. This is not a 22-year-old woman that lives by herself and is doing all these amazing things, has traveled the world. No, no, this is now my baby. Who's driving? Well, I was going to dad. And this? And on and on, it became that thing that just needed to protect her. And I'm just a father, a human father. This is God who made us. And he knew this would be a horrific thing for us to be separate from him forever. So naturally, he got us out of danger. What a beautiful story, huh? What an amazing book. I'm sorry that it's been so turned around to be this God that hates us and wants us to put our masks on. And I like to think this is the story Jesus told when he walked with those disciples down the road. I don't know if he did, but it said he explained the story to them. And I like to think he had to start way back there in the beginning. Oh, see, you missed this whole thing. This all started with me loving you, not hating you. They trust him. They invite him in. Now watch the amazing thing that happens. Read this. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. This to me is so beautiful. Jesus was the guest. He was invited in. They were the hosts. But as they sat at table, he becomes their host. Then he invites them to communion with himself, sharing with them his very body and his very blood. They took off more masks, trusting that he would not reject them and he was equal to that trust. It's the same for us. That's why we do communion every week. When we come to communion, when we come to invite Christ, we can, in fact, I think we must take our masks off for communion to be what it's supposed to be. This isn't the place you come and pretend you've been great all week. This is the place you come and you take all your masks off and say, I have been a mess this week. Thank you for still giving me your body and blood. It's beautiful. Because God will look deep into the very depths of our souls and no matter what he finds there, he will love us. We might not offer that same grace to each other. God will offer it to us. When we read the Gospels, we discover this truth over and over again. Jesus did not have a home, but he was always at table someone else's table, who invited him in. Yet he was always doing the hosting. He was always the center of conversation. He was always forgiving sins, healing the sick. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels, one of my favorite table stories in all the Gospels is in Luke 7, when this woman of, of very questionable reputation, according to the world, came, laid it all out for him, took every mask off she ever wore. In his response... Your faith has saved you. Your trust that God is a God of love has saved you. Go in peace. I love that story. This Christ is a person with whom we can take our masks off. There's nothing hidden that he cannot handle. Nothing that will make him ridicule us or reject us. Nothing that will make him turn his back on us. Nothing that will make him love us less. So here's what I want us to hear this morning. Wearing masks. I know that. 
I know that. Because we all want to be known and we're afraid of what people will know. We all want to be loved and we're afraid we won't be loved if they find just too many honest things about us. But here's the thing. Let's practice taking our masks off. We just did that at communion a few minutes ago. I want to encourage you through this week, through the weeks to come, take your masks off with God. You will find you are so loved, then you will be able to love others. And you'll be able to take off masks with others because even though you know it will probably get you rejected, you know that the only rejecting that matters never happens. That's why we're asked to love others. That's when we really discover how much we are loved. And when we discover how much we're loved, we can love others. Let's invite Christ in, and let's be known. Amen. There's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find in my own. And it keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone keeps me aching with the yearning keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God now I've seen no band of angels but I've heard the soldier's songs Love hangs over them like a banner. Love within them leads them on to the battle, on the journey. And it's never gonna stop ever widening their mercies in the fury of it. Raging fury 